Welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams. Thanks to -to direct-to-consumer businesses, the rise of agritourism, and even social media, it's never been easier for consumers to connect with those producing their food. Here on the Farm Traveler Podcast, we want to connect you with businesses offering direct-to-consumer products you can try at home, agritourism sites you can visit with your family, and exciting new technologies that are changing how your food is being grown. This week, we'll be talking with a few guests from a Texas-based winery that is putting the Lone Star State on the map when it comes to winemaking and offers Texans a unique tourism opportunity. Augusta Vin is located in Fredericksburg, Texas, just under two hours west of Austin. So the 60-acre winery was planted in 2017 with over 10 different varieties that are well-suited for the Texas climate. Today, the winery offers wine tastings, tours, and an online storefront with over 20 varieties that have been awarded by several organizations like the Texas International Wine Competition and the San Francisco International Wine Competition. In our interview today, we'll chat with their winemaker, Travis, and learn more about his background in winemaking, both in Oregon and California, and what he believes Texas has to offer in terms of production and flavor, as well as his thoughts on the science of crafting the perfect wine. We'll also talk with their wine manager, Michael, to learn how they plant special varieties for selected wines, the harvesting process, and how roses are used to identify if any pests are present throughout the vineyard. And lastly, we'll hear from Augusta Vin's marketing manager, Jenna, on how the tours and wine tastings at Augusta Vin are prepared by their extensively trained wine sommeliers, their focus on offering a direct-to-consumer storefront, and the numerous tourism opportunities available at the vineyard. When the show's over, check out the links below for all things Augusta Vin, including how you can try their wines at home. So this was a super fun interview. Love chatting with um, everybody at Augusta Vin and learning more about winemaking. So I hope you enjoy it. Travis and Michael, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm excited to chat with both of you about winemaking. Um, how are y'all doing? We're doing well, thank you. Yep, having a good day. Good. So you guys are with a winery in Texas called Augusta Vin. So Travis, why don't you kind of tell us a little bit about kind of the history of the wine there and what your process is like? Well, I've been here about a month, so I'm still learning myself. Um, <laughs> nice. However, um, the varieties that we grow here, the wines that we make are pretty familiar as far as, uh, you know, geographically around the world. There's a lot of difference everywhere you go, but we have a lot of familiar varieties. We have a lot of really interesting, obscure varieties as well. So I'm still figuring it out, but we've been doing a lot of blending and prepping for bottling. And uh, that's been keeping me real busy. Oh, I can imagine. So, I mean, you guys are, are y'all just getting into the peak season or what's the season look like for y'all? Well, from the winemaking standpoint, we're in bottling season. So um, uh, having been here only a month, we're still preparing for harvest as well at the same time. So August 1 or so, maybe late July, we'll start picking and Michael can talk about that. But for me, it's getting things in line for harvest and prepping for bottling, which you usually don't do at the same time. Mm, I got you. So Michael, anything to add on there? Kind of what it's like being the, the vineyard manager? Yeah. So as far as the vineyard goes right now, uh, all of our varietals, obviously, uh, we've got bud break. We've got really good growth uh, at the moment. Currently, we are disease free. Uh, we are starting to see with uh, our pick pull block and our albarino, we're starting to go from bloom to actually fruit set. 
Uh, so we're starting to see some changes out in the vineyard, but this is our busy time. Obviously now through uh, probably mid-September when hopefully we're finished with harvest. So how much are, like how often are you two, both the winemaker and the vineyard manager, how often are y'all kind of communicating back and forth about like the the stages of the grapes, any ideas you want to try for some new wines or something like that? So what does that collaboration kind of look like? Well, Travis and I, both being fairly new, I mean, we've just kind of, from day one, we've just kind of communicated from day one on the status of the vineyard, things that we may want to try slightly different uh, as far as his expectations on quality of fruit, uh, numbers, etc., yields. Uh, but as far as how often do we communicate, we do it several times a week. Yeah, that's generally speaking what we're, what we're doing right now. In the future, we'll, we'll make uh, more time to, to talk a little bit less off the cuff. Right now, we're sort of running and gunning, so... Um, we talk when we can and we cover as much ground as we can when we do. So that's exciting. So can y'all, can either of you kind of tell me a little bit about kind of the history of Augusta Vin? Uh, the history of Augusta Vin, the vineyard was planted in 2017. Uh, the tasting room building was, uh, opened in the latter part of 19. So, as far as wineries go, we're still very young. Uh, the vineyard's going on its fifth leaf. Uh, tasting room's going on basically its uh, second full year due to COVID with uh, 19 and 20. Uh, 21 was the first full year, so 22 is our second uh, year that uh, we'll have 12 months of operation. That's exciting. And so also, I don't know if I touched base on this at the, at the beginning, but you guys are in Texas, which I think is super interesting. Um, so Travis, like what kind of, I don't know, like what are, what are some advantages of growing wine in Texas versus, you know, somewhere like a California or, or a different state? So what's kind of the whole Texas winemaking thing like? Well, some of the contrasts, for example, um, a few, I spent five years in Oregon. I'm from California. So most of my career has been in California, but as you know, that's a pretty long state, so south to north. So some of the most interesting parts of being in Texas are being this far south. Uh, we're not, it's not quite as humid as some other uh, places down here in the south, but sun exposure is a big part of uh, the annual cycle. So in Oregon, part of the challenge is not enough sun exposure. Um, and seasonal rain is different in Texas. So we have summer rain and fall rain more so than say um, Oregon or California. So the challenges are definitely different, but the growing season being relatively long is helpful. It can be helpful. Um, we get a lot of vigor out of the vines, so we can sort of control our yields that way. So there are a little, a few more options on controlling yields for quality purposes. Um, and I'm not that familiar yet with the soil types, but from a winemaking standpoint, once you bring me the grapes in the winery, uh, I'm dealing with chemistry and balance in the grapes. So Michael has the, uh, he's got the ball on that one. Really what makes the wines different regionally for me depends on what comes out of the vineyard. And then I deal with it from there. Yeah, we can get into that in a little bit, but yeah, Michael, if you just want to kind of go off of there and kind of tell us what makes kind of growing 
grapes a little bit different in um, in Texas? Well, firstly, I think the challenge, you know, for me uh, over the last seven years has been Mother Nature. Uh, mm. We have had droughts. We have had uh, enough rain in one month for the entire year. We have had freezes. We've had hailstorms. We've had everything in the last several years. So unlike California and other areas, Mother Nature plays a very large part uh, in what we yield. Uh, at the estate, uh, we're hoping to get our first full yield off of the vineyard. Uh, we had hail and freeze damage the last couple of years. Uh, so obviously Mother Nature is uh, my biggest enemy. Uh, outside of that, uh, we currently have seven different types of soil in our 60-acre plantings. So a lot of different soils can cause uh, some different issues as far as uh, soil bacterias and things like that. Uh, but that's the biggest issue is Mother Nature compared to other areas of, uh, of growing. So, I mean, what kind of impact is that whenever you guys have like hail? Because, I mean, of course... Stuff like that doesn't happen in California, I assume, that often. And I mean, even you guys get large amounts of snow every now and then. I know the last couple of years have been like kind of some freak snow flurries. So, I mean, how badly does that impact the winemaking process, both of growing and, you know, you might not have enough grapes for that, the bottling period. So how does that really impact you guys? Well, coming from a growing aspect, depending on uh, how severe the hail is, if it takes out our primary buds and we're forced to rely on secondary buds, secondary growth, you generally look at only about 40% of your potential. So that cuts your yield down 60%, sometimes even further, depending on the damage on the vine. Uh, so obviously at that point, you're trying to find other areas that maybe didn't get as much damage so we can provide fruit uh, for a winemaker in the winery. Uh, but Obviously, it can be a uh, can wipe the total crop out. Obviously, as well. So, any fruit you get after a hailstorm is a blessing. <laughs> no, I can imagine. And I mean, I know there are things in place. I'm sure where, I mean, if that happens, you guys aren't gonna super duper suffer from it. But I'm, I mean, I'm sure that's kind of a, a positive when you've got other wine in there, kind of you know aging. You have like a not unlimited supply of wine, but you've got some supplies of wine that you can f kind of fall back on. Is that right? Uh, to an extent, mm -hmm. I think Travis can kind of expand more on this, but obviously as you're growing and you're growing uh, wine club and customers, there's still a certain number of cases that are required uh, or needed to allow steady growth. So unfortunately, when you don't get those numbers, it can affect uh, possible growth of wine club or, you know, things like that based on volume. Gotcha. And so Travis, if you want to talk a little bit kind of about the winemaking process, like once you guys harvest the grapes, what is your role into harvesting the grapes and then eventually turning it into wine? Like what's that whole process like? Well, uh, it starts with the vineyard, the quality coming from the vineyard. Um, so we look at, at physiological ripeness, sugar and acid mainly. Um, there are issues with um, anything like that the weather causes like um, mildew or other issues, we can deal with that with mechanical sorting. And there are other things that we do in the winery to, to remove those issues and clean up. We clean up the juice, clean up the grapes. Um, 
But from my standpoint, moving to Texas, the issue of balance and ripeness is probably the first thing that I think about. So we have a lot of tricks that we don't necessarily, you know, reveal um, to deal with things like that. Uh, you mentioned hail. Hail's an issue in Burgundy. So having made a lot of Pinot Noir, uh, there are things that we can do with, with hail damage. Um, but for me as a winemaker, I end up we having control and, and, you know, Michael being right next door in the vineyard, I can see it from where I'm sitting. Um, my career has mostly been people bringing me grapes and saying, make wine out of this. So it's nice to be able to interact a little more intimately with the vineyard. Um, so getting the grapes in uh, highest quality as possible, that makes my job easier, obviously. But there are a lot of things that we can do in the winery to improve the wines from start to finish. We make decisions constantly uh, all year. So uh, picking decisions, how we manage the grapes to get them into the tank, what we do with the juice, how we ferment the juice, and then the rest of the year after things are fermented, there's still a lot of things to be done. Um, Like prepping for bottling involves quite a bit um, of uh, examining. We do trials with uh, different products that are, derived from grapes and yeast primarily, sometimes with oak. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's almost like cooking a dish, uh, but instead of taking an hour, it takes a year. <laughs> that, that's a really good analogy. I mean, and would you say like every, I don't know, every growing season is the wine just a little bit more unique? Are you, or are you able to kind of replicate that flavor over and over again? Well, that's one of the biggest winemaking questions there is. Um, and, you know, I always use movie analogies. There's the question, if you're making a film, are you making it for yourself or are you making it for you know, everybody? That's the, the big question. And when it comes to consistency, that's also a question with a state fruit or really high quality fruit. So really, really great wines. They typically are not uh, thinking about replicating last year. If you If you have an estate vineyard like this one, and you work with the same fruit over and over, we make decisions in the vineyard that change the nature of the fruit. Um, how much fruit we set on the vines, how we prune, uh, how we manage canopies, how we manage water. So that alone will change the nature of that vine or that block every year. You can create consistency by adjusting uh, accordingly. So you, may, you can make decisions in the vineyard as well. Uh, as we do in the winery to say, do I want it to taste like last year or do I want it to be the best it can be? And uh, it's always a bit of a dilemma. Sometimes you can find the happy medium uh, where the wine is, is fantastic and still will remind people fondly of what they had last year. So it's kind of a long answer to that question, but it is a big part of uh, our discussion whenever we're making decisions. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. And I mean, kind of going off of that a little bit, is there ever like what happens if there is a bad batch of wine? Like it's maybe it's been fermented and it's gone through the whole process, but then when it's ready to to, to be bottled or maybe after it's aged, it's just not good. Like, is that a thing that happens or no? Well, when it comes to aging, that doesn't happen if I'm doing my job correctly. Hmm. Things can happen in the in the cellar. Um, I often compare fermentation and harvest to open heart surgery. So (laughs) you have so many factors involved during fermentation 
and we have preventative measures to keep things from going south or sideways during fermentation, once you finish fermenting, it's like now you close up the patient and the patient is ready to heal and you've got physical therapy or whatever else needs to happen to get them back on their feet. Um, so aging is usually if you have an issue during aging, you either haven't done your homework or you didn't um, do the preventative things that you need to to prevent problems during aging. The fermentation process is the hardest part because if you get if you don't get that right, some of those problems are very hard to fix. Um, if you do have an issue during aging, which is still possible, um, there are a lot of th different technologies that we have now. Um, little sp spoilage issues with the yeast or bacteria, a lot of those compounds can be removed. Um, it's not it's not a desirable situation because um, the machines or the products that we use to remove those compounds are always impactful on other compounds that are good. So that's really the that's the core of winemaking is to get into that behind the curtain stuff, the microbiology, and um, solve them before they happen. Or there are other ways that we, my mentor calls it enological jujitsu, um, where you take a problem and you use it to your advantage and you produce something that is better than it was before. Um, but that that's a little esoteric. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's very interesting. I mean, it seems that there's so much, like you're saying, there's so much technology where you can prevent a bad batch from happening or just you can kind of, you've got, we've got so many more tools than I guess winemakers from centuries ago to where you, I guess you guys can ensure that your product's going to be superior year in and year out. Oh, definitely. The technology and, and uh, all of the things that we can, we can add that are, like I said, derived from grapes, yeast or oak uh it's a difference 20 years ago it's changed completely uh, we can really clean things up and the impacts are less uh i mean the negative impacts of those processes are, are fewer than they were back then oh well that's good so michael going going to you a little bit so while travis is going through the process of like making the wine and all that good stuff so what are you doing at the vineyard like to like Maybe, maybe prepare for the next growing season. So what exactly are you doing during that time? Sure. Uh, once harvest is finished, obviously I want to make sure that our vines, if there's any damage done during harvest, uh, we do machine harvest so it can be hard on the vines. Uh, so we do verify vine health as well as infrastructure, make sure everything is intact and solid. At that point, my job is to make sure the vines have what they need to actually go dormant because they have to heal themselves. There are wounds that do happen during harvest. Uh, so I'll make sure they have what they need uh, in order to heal themselves and properly go dormant. Uh, you want them to be able to go dormant with everything they need to wake up. So when they wake up, they've got all the nutrients, they've got everything they need. So that's what I'm doing for two, three months after harvest. So until the end of the year. And so how long are they dormant for? They generally go dormant. Weather-wise around here, it's generally uh, mid to late December. At least our vineyard was this year. Uh, we generally get bud break mid to late March. Uh, so there's only about a three-month window where they're completely dormant. Oh, wow. Okay. And the rest of the year, they're either growing or actively producing the fruit? Correct. So from bud break, which is generally mid-March to late March, uh, 
We generally start our uh, earliest harvest anywhere from late July to first week or so of August. So uh, I mean, that's just a few month growing period to go from almost nothing because we prune everything back into full grown vines and hopefully, you know, about four, four and a half tons an acre. I mean, that puts out 200 tons of fruit off this vineyard. That's a lot of fruit. And I mean, kind of going off that a little bit, like what's the harvesting process like? Do you guys do it by hand or is there some sort of like machinery going on? What's the harvesting like? We do have a machine harvester uh, that does come in. Basically what it does is it goes, uh, it straddles the rows and goes down. It, it's actually got little rubber beaters inside it that actually shakes the vine. So any fruit that is ripe and ready to come off, it'll actually uh, turn loose from the actual vine and it comes off just berries. We generally don't get a lot of trash involved in it. Uh, so we basically, uh, my job is to hand Travis caviar, basically. <laughs> uh, so if that happens, his job is easy. Uh, but we generally run, uh, we, we like to harvest at nighttime. So we'll generally run anywhere from 10 to midnight start. We like to do it in the coolest time of the day to allow those, the fruit to be as cool as possible to enter the winery. Uh, so there are some areas that, uh, we will probably have to hand harvest a little bit just due to, uh, some real tight spaces. And obviously, uh, Travis and I will talk a little more maybe about, uh, if there's, uh, exceptions or special wines or additions, maybe there are certain areas that we may hand pick versus, uh, machine harvesting, but, uh, Thank goodness for machines, because harvesting <laughs> 60 acres can be a handful. But uh, No, I can imagine. I mean, that's a lot of grapes. And I mean, kind of like you were saying, too, you've got to be really, really delicate. It's not like those machines that kind of, you can, you know, all, that um, harvest almonds or tree nuts that like violently shake the tree. I mean, you've got to be really gentle with these grapes because, I mean, if they're damaged, you can't use them for wine. And so, yeah, kind of going what you were leading with there. I mean, either of you can start this answer if you want, but... um. Like, how do you decide, like, we're going to use these grapes for a very, very special blend versus just using them for our regular wines? Like, how do you set off certain areas for grapes? And then what kind of goes into that process? Well, obviously, from the vineyard side, if uh, if Travis decides or if we decide that we're going to try to do things differently, I may prune a block differently. We may uh, deal with the canopy differently. So there's things that we can do differently differently. Uh, to help achieve Travis's vision for the wine, uh, to help him along as far as that goes. But as far as Travis's decision, he can respond more on that. Yeah, yeah. And again, it, it, it deals with looking at this from two directions. You know, it's, we have an estate vineyard. So from my standpoint, I'm going to go walk it with Michael and, and look at the vines, how the vines are developing, the varieties that are planted, the clones. And there's historical data to say that these grapes make this kind of wine best. But being in Texas means that our Sangiovese is different than what I may have worked with in California, for example. So I'm looking at historical blends here. I've got three vintages of wine in the cellar, give or take. We've bottled quite a bit, but I've had the privilege of tasting the previous two vintages uh, and the 21s, which are nowhere near ready. And those, so then I can make that decision to say this variety in this block is making this wine really well. 
big red wine or rosé for red varieties. With whites, uh, it's a matter of deciding what the vines will produce, um, high acid, low acid, and then what do I want to do to adjust that in the cellar? A lot of it has to do with taking the grapes as they come in and recognizing where they want to go. And that's part of uh, what the experience, you know, 25 years will do for you. You say, well, I can taste this grape or I can taste last year's wine and say, this is the direction we need to go. We need to go in a different direction. We want to do it the same way. It's going to make the best wine, one or the other. But we also want to look at what consumers want. You know, what, if we want to make the best wine in Texas or potentially, you know, we want to make the best wine anywhere that we can. So consumers will respond to that. When you make great wine, people do respond to that. And that's, that's the, sort of the combination of what do they want? What do we want? Um, who decides what great wine is? And uh, there's a lot, there's a lot there to talk about. So considering what people want means we set our expectations uh, a little bit based on that. So we're going to produce sparkling wine because people like sparkling wine, you know, Maybe the company wasn't set up as a sparkling house, but we can produce sparkling wine. Uh, we have a port program. We have all these little options that we can do to say, if, if, if as a winemaker, I don't make a lot of, I haven't made a lot of port, but I know how to do it and people love it and we'll make a little bit, you know? So that's the big discussion. I mean, that's what the team is for. I mean, I bet it is. And especially because you guys are, are I mean, not new, but you your business hasn't been around like, you know, for decades, like other established wineries. So I mean, are you guys, what would you say is like, you're trying to find the perfect wine that your soil produces versus also producing something that consumers really, really want. So is there like a really good balance there? That's the goal. Yeah. We want to take what makes Texas wine, Texas wine. Uh, and we'll, we'll take that product. We'll grow it the best that we can using the natural influences of, of the area, the climate, the soil. And then once we pick, the winemaking becomes, like I said, it's, it's almost more reactive than it is uh, influenced from me. It's more, I'm going to do the best that I can with what this wine wants to be. Um, some best practices, but um, there's a lot of decisions along the way from picking to uh, bottling. No, I can imagine. I mean, it just seems like it's such an art and a science to, I mean, there's so much going on to, to just the whole growing of grapes, harvesting it. And of course, I mean, bottling it and just trying to figure out your different wines you're going to make and all that stuff. I mean, it's super fascinating. Like when, when my wife and I went to Napa for her 30th a few weeks ago, it was just, it was eye opening to kind of see what all goes on because you just think, oh, they're going to pick the grapes, put it in some barrels and let it age for, for a while. But there's a lot of really small steps in between there that can really make or break the wine. For sure. Uh, I always, like I said, movie analogies, uh, making a film involves a creative aspect and a technical aspect. And that's exactly what we do uh, with wine. Um, you need the sensory uh, analysis of wine is just as important as the lab analysis. So when we sit down and taste wines, we talk about style. We talk about interpretive things that our customers are going to see because they aren't going to see our lab data. And they don't need to. It doesn't. It doesn't mean anything a lot of the time. So we talk about what things taste like. You know, I write tasting notes. We do food pairings. Those kinds of things are creative. 
but the technical side is is kind of that behind the curtain aspect and you, you kind of have to be able to do both and the same thing with michael's he can talk more about the vineyard but those those all come into play that's why we a lot of us call it a craft as opposed to science or an art it's a combination of both I, I like that the combination of both the craft. So, Michael, do you have anything to add on that? You know, I certainly would have to agree. Uh, there's a lot of vineyard managers that I know and vineyard management companies, and you can pretty well see who's managed what vineyards because it is, it's a vision. It's an art, and it takes years to get a vineyard really in shape to where you want it to be. I mean, I'm coming into a vineyard that, you know, uh, overall is in pretty good shape uh, obviously there's you know small issues in every vineyard you walk into uh, but after a few years you'll be able to tell a vineyard that i manage versus somebody else manages it's just kind of an art form artwork no different than any other artist or even a uh, musician you just kind of can tell their music over somebody else's but it definitely is a, a vision it takes a vision to be able to do vineyard or even winemaking. I bet it does. And kind of moving on, moving along a little bit. I mean, a, a big thing about Augusta Vin is that you got, you also have a lot of tourism there. Is that correct? So, I mean, Michael, as a vineyard manager, so what goes into planning all of that tourism that you guys have? Mostly uh, grounds prep, uh, knowing that we do, in my personal opinion, we probably have one of the, uh, best locations, views uh, in the area, not just in the area, but statewide, worldwide. Uh, we basically took a snippet out of Napa and stuck it in Texas, you know. So uh, grounds management. Uh, so there's a little different that goes into a uh, location like this versus just growing vines uh, because it's, you're not just a viticulturalist. You also, there's, you know, the place has to look pristine and look beautiful. So there's a lot of other things that we do. So we're not just growing grapes, but we're also trying to create the best experience visually, appearance-wise, aesthetically, that we can give uh, our tourists, our guests. And so do y'all have tours also that kind of walk um, kind of customers through the whole process of like vineyard to bottle? I think Jenna could probably discuss a little more on that, can't you, Jenna? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, Jenna. And I mean, I'll go ahead and introduce you. Yeah, you're the marketing manager. So kind of tell us a little bit about kind of how the whole process is of, of tours that, can, you know, when consumers really want to see how grapes go from the vine to the bottle. Yeah, absolutely. We have um, two, two tour programs at Augusta Ben. Um, our VIP tour, which is kind of a quick 45-minute look at um, our vineyard and production. And we end with a seated wine tasting and that's led by our uh, song uh, tour guide. And that does kind of a, from the crush pad all the way through the tank room, the wine cellar and ends in our uh, mezzanine. And it's a beautiful overlook of the, of the tank room, the fermentation room. Um, our grand tour is similar. Um, that tour is a little bit more elevated. You're going to have a paired uh, curated wine tasting with that one. And you do get to spend a little bit more time in the vineyard, uh, learning about viticulture. Um, again, a very educated tour. 
but they're both they're both great, just depending on our our customers' time frame. Yeah, they sound like it. And I mean, one thing that I was amazed at whenever you know my wife and I again, whenever we went to Napa, just the knowledge of everybody there at, at the wineries. And so, if for people giving that tour, even for doing the wine tastings and the wine pairings, like what all goes into that training to make sure that you know they know. It seems like everything about the wines, everything about um, the location, that season of grapes. So what kind of goes into that training for those people to kind of educate consumers? Sure. So our uh, tour guides are um, level one songs. So just the background um, education wise, um, they're top of the line. And then they also are definitely working with our um, winemaker and also Michael Vineyard, um, to discuss exactly what's going into this year's harvest, what's being bottled. Um, there's a lot of communication there so that we can get the best information out to our customer. Oh, that's exciting. So how many levels of, um, of sommeliers are there? I didn't know that there were levels. Yes. Um, you can get all the way up to your master sommelier. So I believe, and this might be a question for um, Travis, do you know how far you up you can go? Well, there are a couple different quali- uh, qualifications. There's a quarter of master sommeliers. Um, there's a, I forget what the other master of wine. There are different organizations that certify the education level. I think master psalms typically there's I think it's level three or level four or something like that. I'm not that familiar with it because I myself haven't pursued that part of the of the industry. Um, because winemakers and psalms have a really, really different perspective most of the time. Um, but we interact, interestingly, it's, it's always fun to sit down with psalms because, for example, sommeliers know a lot more about regions and um, being able to taste a wine and tell you where it's from and what vintage and those kinds of things, way above my head. Um, I can tell you what's wrong with a wine if I taste it. That's, that's one of the, you know, the things that winemakers do is we we taste wines and figure out what to do to make them better. So Psalms deal with the finished product and they know a lot more about it than I do. Yeah, that's so fun just to listen to them talk about, you know, where it's grown in that area and how the soil's different, the climate's different and kind of the impact that it has on the wine. Because, I mean, you, it's, I don't know, there's just so many variables there that kind of play into how the wine's going to taste that nobody really thinks about until you're actually there doing the tour. Yeah. Well, another comparison, um, my, my, uh, university degrees in film criticism and film critics get a bad rap because, um, we often don't know how to make films and that's kind of the relationship between Psalms and winemakers. So I, I, do, I have a bit of a philosophical bent about winemaking just because my education is in criticism and description um, and criticism meaning, you know, analysis, not so much just being critical of something in, in a negative way, but we, we wax philosophic about movies and, um, I don't, I have made short films in college, but if somebody said, I want you to make a movie for me, I would say, well, I'm going to need some help. And, but so I re- have a lot of respect for Psalms for that reason, that, um, being a film critic by training, um, when I watch films, I see different things that other people don't see. And uh, so uh, there's a lot to learn from Psalms and vice versa. Oh, I bet. And I mean, kind of going off that, I, I bet when you're making a wine, you see things that maybe different wine makers wouldn't see. And you're like, well, 
I can try this, I can try that, all that good stuff. Because I mean, I feel like every winemaker is going to be different. Their experience is going to be different. And so, you know, they can make a very unique wine, even though if it might be from the same batch. Absolutely. And you have differences in critics uh, like Robert Parker's influence on the industry has been profound. And someone like Jancis Robinson, uh, who's been around a lot longer than Robert Parker, has a completely different palate. She's going to love different wines. Um, and so from a winemaking standpoint, again, I don't think so much about what um, critics will think. It's more about what are what is my experience with what people like? And even from my own perspective, uh, having tasted many, many, many wines, what are the things that make wine magically good? Um, things like mouthfeel are really, really important, uh, but we don't talk about that a lot necessarily with consumers. Uh, it's, it's a bit of that behind the, behind the curtain thing. You know, mouthfeel is uh, difficult to describe and people actually experience mouthfeel differently. Um, super tasters versus people with sensitivity to acid. Um, so you can't really necessarily predict what people will like. Um, so we really have to rely on our own palates. And that's one of the reasons that winemakers, we typically only taste with uh, two or three other people, just because we want those different perspectives. Our body chemistry changes every day. Um, so we have to have perspective within our daily activities to make sure that we're not uh, living in a uh, ivory tower, so to speak. Hmm. That's very interesting. I mean, would you say that two people can taste the same wine, but get totally different things from it? It's almost guaranteed. That's interesting. And, and then kind of going off a of mouthfeel, I mean, would that kind of be the texture of the wine, I guess you could say? Yeah, it's the physical sensation of the wine. So beyond aromas and flavors, mouthfeel really boils down to, um, I guess the things would be astringency, tannins, so structure, also weight or perception of weight, um, viscosity or perceptions of viscosity versus tightness or drying effects. Um, and then it's sort of viscosity is not the same as oiliness, but the way it rolls around in your mouth, um, tannin management has a lot to do with softness of the tannins. So older wines, will have longer tannins so they don't stick into your uh, into your tongue as much. And um, those things are profoundly affected by everything that we do. Sugar levels, acid, the age of the wine and the tannins. Uh, alcohol is a huge um, influence on mouthfeel, but we don't talk about that a lot either. So yeah, it's a big part of what we do. And it's one of the things that we don't discuss as much um, as far as on the psalm side or the critical side or the consumer side, mouthfeel is not as evident. Hmm. I get that. That's very interesting because, I mean, we heard that a couple of times when we were doing some wine tastings, but, I mean, it wasn't a phrase. I was like, wait, mouthfeel? Like, what do you mean with the wine? But, I mean, that is very, very interesting. Um, and so moving on a little bit, you guys also have the option to buy direct from you guys, which I think is phenomenal. I mean, if anybody around the country wants to buy your wine, they can do that. And so what's kind of some, I mean, if, if any three of you want to answer this, what's kind of some struggles, but also some really great successes you've had with that whole buying direct model? So I, I wouldn't say so much struggles and, you know, of course, having the 
you know, ability to give the the customer, uh, you know, a user friendly um, shopping experience from our website. That is huge. And that's something that we're working on and growing with. Um, that's a focus for us in the next, you know, upcoming year. But all in all, it has been terrific. Um, we like that direct to consumer um, and, and keeping it close knit for us. Um, we really want people to come out and experience Augusta Bend. And having that direct to consumer and us being the only option for them is perfect. Yeah, I think places like you guys, whether it's wine, um, wineries or just like regular farms that have like tourism operations. I think it's so cool because you can literally go out and visit and see what's going on at the farm. And like in your case, if you like the wine, you can of course buy the wine and then just buy it online whenever you want and just support those local businesses, which are awesome. And I mean, of course, like we were talking about it earlier before we started um, kind of COVID's impact on, on everything. And now people are wanting, wanting to get out more visit farms, buy local. And so it seems like operations like you all are kind of in the perfect little bubble. I mean, that's perfect. And I'd like to piggyback. I want to go back to the tourism question. It's related to the concept of direct to consumer. And, you know, one of the analogies that I've used, I'm from Paso Robles in California. Paso is directly between San Francisco and Los Angeles, but it's three and a half hours from each. Where we are is one hour from Austin and one hour from San Antonio. So even Napa doesn't have that kind of proximity to airports and, you know, large population centers. So we get a lot of traffic. It's the second most visited wine region in the country after Napa by per capita or per visitor. So that's huge. Um, so, but for me, for me, the direct consumer model is is fantastic because if you make large volumes of wine, we're always talking about um, what we call the hand sell, which is, you know, you can put it on a grocery store shelf, but there's nobody there to talk to the consumer about what the wine is about with direct consumer and, uh, you know, wine club sales. It's great because we have the opportunity to tell the story behind the wine, explain, um, you know, what's special about it or we can answer people's questions. So it's a really wonderful model for a winemaker because I can actually talk to people about what they want to know. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. I mean, you can literally like build a relationship with somebody and I'm with people that want to learn about wine. And I mean, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like there's two really groups, two big groups, like craft beer people and then wine people. Like they just love learning about about those things. Like I like wine and I really like craft beer. And so I love visiting craft breweries or wineries to just kind of see what's going on. And so I think things like this are perfect. I mean, you, you can visit, build a relationship, support you guys. And also you guys have a bunch of concerts and other stuff at, at the, at your winery, right? Yes, we do. Um, depending on the season, now that we're coming into um, spring and summer, we offer Friday, Saturday, and Sunday um, music, live music. And um, that's normally later afternoon for our uh, customers that come out um, Friday after work. And then Saturday and Sunday are also later afternoon. But it's something our customers love to be able to enjoy live music and drink great wine uh, and enjoy our food as well. I bet they do. And I mean, another example, another reason they can get out 
bringing their friends, kind of go over it and be in a beautiful vineyard, which I mean, looking at pictures, it looks absolutely breathtaking. So I'm very jealous of, of your setup and how it looks. It's very, very pretty. <laughs> well, something else. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Something else I was going to mention about visiting the winery. The fact that the vineyard is uh, between the front gate and the tasting room is really nice. But um, so vines are beautiful in general, uh, especially during the season uh, that we're likely to have visitors. Um, even though we welcome people in the wintertime, we still have wine. Um, but some of the things that vineyard management uh, that benefits the vines, for example, you'll see a lot of rose bushes planted at the end of vine rows because they attract beneficial insects. So then suddenly you've got this blast of color and sometimes cover crops, for example, will provide color in the springtime or even in the winter, depending on where you are and what you plant. So that's a nice little synergy between what's beautiful and what is better for the vines and makes better wine. It's kind of an ecological cycle, if you will, um, of beauty, really, because you get beauty visually when you walk or drive through the vineyard and you get it in the glass if we do the right if we do the right thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it, you're you've got a beautiful landscape and then you can you have extra biological things you can have going on, like the roses that not only are just beautifying the landscape, making your vineyard look pretty, but it's also, like you said, bringing in those beneficial insects and you can have a better wine, less inputs, kind of working more in line with nature. So that's awesome. That's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. And they also pick up disease first too. One oh, they do? Are, I didn't know about that. Really? We can actually tell bud break. We can tell if there's issues as well with uh, the environment as well. A lot of rose bushes, they tend to get sick before vines get sick. Uh, oh, okay. So that's another issue as well. The one thing nice, going back to COVID briefly, a lot of people didn't travel to California. They stopped traveling. So coming to Austin, San Antonio, they come out here and they're able to get that touch of, you know, true wine country. You know, in Texas, a lot of Texas wineries grew quite a bit exponentially through COVID where they felt they would actually go belly up. So, oh, I bet they did that. Yeah, that's yeah, very interesting because I mean, I, I feel like Texas is definitely more in the center of the country. So a lot more people would travel there um, during COVID. That's very interesting. And so, I mean, have y'all seen very steady growth after kind of COVID's kind of started to die down a little bit? Um, yes, we have. Uh, the growth has continued. And that was, you know, definitely something that we thought about with COVID increasing our tourism just in Fredericksburg alone and trying to keep up keep up with the demand you know we definitely were thinking you know year over year what the, this is going to look like um, and thankfully it has continued um, we've really just kind of blown up it's it's been great well good that's a good problem to have and I mean I, yeah, I absolutely. hope I bet yeah I, I hope y'all continue to kind of grow and have more and more people kind of visit you guys and see what's going on um well, this has been super interesting chatting with y'all, Jenna, Michael, and Travis. Um, Jenna, if people want to follow you guys, if they want to visit your website, or maybe if they want to tour um, your winery, where all can they go to kind of see what you guys are doing? Sure. So you can visit us at uh, www.augustavin.com, and then you can follow us at Instagram at Augustavin Winery, and also on Facebook, as well as TikTok. Oh, all sweet. Yep. At- 
Yes. Y'all are on TikTok. Okay. We I need, are. I, we just started. <laughs> I've been trying to get more active on TikTok. So I am definitely going to try to find you guys. That's super exciting. Yes. That's so cool. All right. Well, this has been a blast. Um, best of luck to you guys. Hope Augusta Vin continues to grow. Um, my wife and I are going out to Texas in June. So hopefully we can swing by and see you guys. We'll let you know. Yes. Come visit. Sounds great. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks so much for listening to the Farm Traveler podcast. If you're new here, consider sharing with a friend or family member and definitely hitting that subscribe button if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We put out new episodes every week and you can also see more of our content over at thefarmtraveler.com and of course, anywhere on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Just look up Farm Traveler and you will find us. So thanks so much and we'll see you next week.